What if everything you're searching for is already inside of you? Hi, I'm Cassandra Goodman, and I believe that true power comes from staying connected to who we really are at our core. This is a podcast about what it means to stay true to ourselves and why authentic leadership is such tricky business. You'll hear inspiring real life stories from big hearted leaders. I hope these stories help you to remember that true power comes from within. So today on True Power, I'm really excited to be speaking with Ali Mackay. Welcome, Ali. Thank you. So Ali is a a registered psychologist who is passionate about empowering people to achieve their goals and helping people manage stress and anxiety so they can get on with living a rich and full life. Ali, in her work, draws on a wide range of treatment modalities, including internal family systems, or IFS for short, and that's the modality that both underpins my work at the Centre for Self-Fidelity and also informed my latest book, Being True. Ali does a lot of work uh, with trauma using the modality of IFS combined with the modality of EMDR, and we'll talk a bit more about what that is. Uh, And this work has a really direct link to the practice of self-fidelity because trauma, we know, is an experience of disconnection to self. And so the work Ali does with people really is work that helps to repair and restore our connection to our core self and our connection to our true power. So that's why I'm particularly excited about our chance to meet with Ali today. Uh, Ali and I met many years ago on an IFS training program and before establishing Ali Mackay Psychology Practice in Sydney, Ali ran the Support After Suicide Group in the Sutherland Shire. She's been a facilitator for the World Vision Kids Hope Mentoring Program with children at social and emotional risk. She's also run community groups assisting children with diagnosed anxiety disorders to live more satisfying independent lives. And I've been really fortunate to benefit from Ali's deep care and deep skill in my own personal ongoing journey of growth and healing. And I've also been super fortunate to benefit from Ali's support and mentorship in my work to build a strong bridge between the world of therapy and psychology and the world of authentic leadership. So that was a lot, Ali, because you're one impressive lady. But what else do you think listeners should know about who you are and the work you do in the world before we talk a bit more about some of these modalities? Ah, okay. Um, So something else that I have been uh, involved in for a really long time as well is working with patients who experience chronic illness. and uh, particularly, um, you know, illnesses that remit like multiple sclerosis or migraine and chronic chronic pain, um, headache, things like that. And um, I have developed some protocols around using mindfulness-based treatment and biofeedback, which is, I think, we used to think biofeedback was a little bit more exciting back before we had smartwatches and things like that, where we've kind of constantly got feedback, but even so measuring some of those body-based stress responses to internal thoughts that actually directly impact on our health and immune system. So 
I'm particularly excited by and have always been excited by what the mind and body connection is is like and how to enhance your physical health by having um, you know using your mind even if that just means deliberately choosing to focus on something more positive or more relaxing um, even in the middle of pain um, and the power of that imagination and the power of your mind to actually be able to help you to um, experience relief or to focus on something else that's more helpful in the midst of something difficult. So, yeah, so that's that's some, I don't use as much equipment these days, but, um, you know, I tend to use part of that knowledge in my practice from day to day with patients. I think that's so powerful. And I was reading that on your website as I was preparing for today's talk. And I actually suffer from migraines myself. And I have recently discovered that even in the midst of a migraine, with a certain types of relaxation or thoughts in the moment, I can really believe that the the physical sensations of a migraine is only something I've discovered very recently. Um, and I think it's so fascinating, this mind-body connection. It, I mean, it really is. We actually um, presented it to at a neurology conference a long time ago, and it's you know it's it's now well established in the pain world. You know, with spinal pain, that most of it is better off being dealt with um, with an alternative to surgery. Um, and similar with a lot of the migraine headaches, a lot of the tablets are less effective than what you've discovered, which is that you can actually switch where you pay attention. You can switch down muscle tone in some other parts of the body, say the shoulders, and actually experience some relief in other parts of, in other parts that might be might be sore around the forehead or the jaw or something like that. Yeah, or behind the eyes, you know. That's, yeah, that's a neck one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's so powerful, right? I'm all about that, about helping people to feel like they've got choice and power back in their lives because pain can make you feel very disempowered. It really can. Pain in so many ways and even, you know, the, the preemptive fear of what if I, I'm in pain, what if I get a migraine, it can really, um, for anyone living with chronic pain or or just, um, you know, as our bodies age and, and have their, their ailments, it's a, it's a big deal. And I think that's a beautiful segue into internal family systems therapy, which as we know, having practiced together and that's a modality I think both of us feel very passionately about that the the trailheads, as Dr. Richard Schwartz, the founder of IFS, would describe them, the, the, the clues that we have a part, a subpersonality, a schema, an ego state active in our minds and our bodies is the presence of some felt sensation in our body. So <clears throat> as we know, an IFS session often begins with um, helping people tune into where they feel what they feel in their bodies um, yeah. as a pathway to exploring the cognitive constraints in in our ways of thinking and seeing the world which I always find so fascinating so perhaps you could say a little bit more about how you work with IFS and in your perspective and how IFS links to connecting to our core selves finding our true power and also perhaps a little bit about EMDR for those who haven't heard about it. Yeah, sure. Um, so with IFS, the um, the beginning point is, I suppose, um, to, you know, to land that in the body, to notice, you know, maybe somebody comes along and says, I'm quite um, distressed about X, Y, or Z. And an IFS therapist will tend to say, notice that, you know, notice that 
that distress in your, you know, that your emotional sense of that distress, but notice how you feel that in your body. Um, and typically, I mean, almost every single time people will say, oh yeah, I'm feeling it, you know, like a crushing sensation on my chest, or I'm feeling it as a tight band across my forehead or, or, or something, they'll, they'll notice that in their body. So IFS is, I guess, um, it naturally follows the way that the body remembers um, and, and in, embodies emotional discomfort and emotional distress and also the story that our cognitive mind tells us about that. So those three components of the physical body, the emotional self and the, the verbal or the mental story, if you like, the cognitive story, all get addressed at the same time with IFS. Mm. And very often there'll be, you know, because that's a pattern, you know, we tend to go back to the same sort of physical tension holding when we, um, you know, when we have the same sort of emotional discomfort. So um, mm. you know, we've even got colloquial expressions like that person is a pain in the neck. <laughs> um, <laughs> or the butt. <laughs> or the butt. <laughs> and so, yeah, so, um, you know, we, we say those kind of things because we actually do experience, say, some annoyance as a physical discomfort and mm. um, and then in unpacking some of that we can get to really get to know how how we have appraised that situation um, and then coped with it you know in a healthy or maybe in a less than healthy way in a way that maybe isn't working for us as well anymore mm. um, also really helpful with chronic pain if you like to think about you know the natural experience that we have with a discomfort is to brace against it um, you know, I sometimes say to people who who are open to hearing this, you know, if I was to reach across and punch you in the stomach, um, I don't say that in a harsh way, but if they, they, even just to say that, then their stomach muscles will automatically clench just with the words of that. We can't help but creating an image and then having a response to the idea of something. So if we were to think then, what if I have a migraine in an hour, already those muscles that are behind the eyes and the jaw are starting to prepare to brace and to protect so interesting because i think what i stumbled on in terms of that relaxation technique of the muscles behind my eyes is it is a bracing against the migraine that i've realized oh if i just soften yeah. the bracing then actually most of the pain of the migraine just dissipates it's it that's so interesting i'm gonna have to think a lot about the bracing against yeah. um is so powerful it's very uh, natural, right to do that it's counterproductive when it's it's like being worried about being worried you know you're kind of magnifying worry in, inadvertently there and being um anxious about will I be in pain is is a physical bracing against a physical muscle tension so it's kind of magnifying mm. and I I I often share with clients when I'm doing my IFS coaching as an example of how the activation of a, a part often for me in my own practice, a younger part has a certain physical tell or sign. And for me, before I started working with IFS, I had this strange thing happen to me that sometimes when I was in a difficult conversation with my husband, I would lose the ability to look him in the eye. It was this strange thing where I felt like I couldn't move my eyeballs to look him in the eye. It was so strange. You know, I'd be sitting there thinking, what is going on? You know, I'm a 40 something year old woman and I can't look my husband in the eye. It's like, I can't 
physically move my eyeballs and it was a real hijacking from a younger layer of self and now I have the practice of thanks to your support and the support of other coaches and therapists to be able to take care of that younger part and reassure her perhaps before difficult conversations with my husband and and now I I I, I can I've regained control of my eyeballs <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's so lovely, Cassie. And then, and there, um, that part of you that was holding whatever that was is probably quite relieved to know there's a healthy adult self who can take care of this, right? As you've connected with yourself, yeah, yeah, it's so point. powerful. So, tell us a little bit about EMDR. Like, firstly, what does that even stand for, and how does this modality compare to IFS and complement IFS? Yeah, um, it is a clunky name, EMDR. Uh, it stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. And it was developed about 35 years ago by a, a psychologist in the States called Francine Shapiro. Um, she discovered that when she was um, she went for a walk, uh, when she was trying to work out a difficult problem, when she came back, the problem seemed to be resolved. It seemed a lot less emotionally distressing to her. And she actually, being a scientist, she actually was curious about what the mechanism of action was in her brain. And she recalled that it had been autumn and her eyes had been sweeping left to right across the path to look out for leaves. So she actually got some of her flatmates and said, while, I, while you think about a problem, look left and right. And, and she tried out some of these things and discovered that there was a processing effect when you are working through something difficult, when you have bilateral movement, particularly left to right eye movement, that seems to allow difficult um, material to have more problem-solving capacity without actually deliberately trying to do that. So there's been a lot of research on that since and other bilateral movements. And there's been a lot of theories put forward about whether that mimics REM sleep. You know, we have a lot of activity in our eyes during rapid eye movement sleep, where we often do uptake to the hypothalamus and reconsolidate memory and those kind of things. Um, and it's, it's been now with the World Health Organization, a, a, a gold standard trauma treatment for, for quite a long time. And there are several protocols around using um, different sorts of um, EMDR protocols for trauma, for phobias, for depression and anxiety and things like that. Mm. Um, where that as a therapy, it takes a long time to train as an EMDR therapist. You can't really, um, you can go for a walk and sweep your eyes and notice that you can feel a bit of a relief. Um, but if you've got a, a, you know, a major trauma that you're trying to work through, it's, it is useful to go and have the full protocol with a trained therapist. Um, and where that blends in with the internal family systems model is we'll often find that while a part of us, for example, wants to work through a traumatic experience, another part might not. Um, if I can use your example that you just gave, you know, a part of you wanted to look at your husband and the other part didn't. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, in fact, um, going about that by understanding that we are, we do have multiple motivations. Um, and the part that wants to resolve the situation has got its own set of drives and motivations and the part that doesn't want to, that perhaps has got um, a more hiding or freezing or flight fight type of response, 
um, actually working through that from an IFS, an EMDR perspective for the part that's feeling afraid um, can actually be really helpful unpacking maybe a previous traumatic memory associated with with something like that. Mm. I'm actually involved in a course at the moment, um, which is a 16-week immersion course for therapists blending IFS with EMDR. And we've run a few of these um, over the last few years. It's the, developed by uh, Dr. Annabelle McGoldrick, um, who's an EMDR consultant. Um, so, yeah, so there's, there's some really great uses of these modalities and blending of them, which is really interesting. Mm, I love that. I, I, I love how, how these modalities come together and complement each other and that what underpins both modalities, it sounds like, is this, uh, awareness that we're as humans we're multifaceted there's not just one alley not one cassie to get to know and care for and um to support but that we have all these layers of self and all these different parts of us which you know as i create this bridge between the ifs modality and the business world is not not something that everyone knows you know we 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 still do a lot of profiling in the corporate world that assumes there's one self to get to know and somehow categorize (laughs) and so I think that's the you know if if there was one thing I hope leaders take out of um the work I do and 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 these modalities is that we we are multiples and multiplicity is a natural occurring um aspect of the human mind and the human beings and if more of us could embrace that I think so many of us would then uh, the possibility of moving towards more wholeness and more healing then then I think emerges absolutely absolutely yeah mm-hmm. it takes courage to look in there yes the can yeah. of worms fear is real <laughs> yes it's short <laughs> like what do you mean lady you want yeah. start? I've been working for decades to keep the lid on this can of worms and now you want me to look in the can That's of right. worms <laughs> Yes. Uh, so, Ali, you know, you've listened to many of my episodes of True Power, so you know the key question that we love to unpack is the this question that I'll, I'll ask you now, which is would you be willing to tell us about a time in your life when, when you realised that you were not being true to yourself? Yes, I would. And um, I think it's a great question, by the way. Um, it's um, It really, it's 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 given me some pause for thought. Um, and I, I did want to preface it a little bit with just, I know because I'm a psychologist, I want to just kind of lay the theory out a little bit, if that's okay. Please, please. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so I, that question of being true to yourself, um, many, I know you and probably many of your listeners would also be familiar with um, the psychiatrist Gabor Mate, who's um, put a lot of work into this field of trauma and identity and um, authenticity and he um, he will talk about um, our, our big dilemma our big developmental dilemma as being one of authenticity to oneself versus attachment to our primary caregivers and I think this sits a lot at the heart of the, some of the difficulty um, with being treated to oneself um, if you think about the way that we might compromise what we think or feel in that work context, or even the way that we um, choose to express our beliefs, that's um, 
we will compromise those things in order to find acceptance and belonging in a group. Um, we, we might hide who we really are at work because it's so important for us as humans to belong to the group and to not, not necessarily to um, be on the outside of the group. And there there might be reasons for that that are kind of evolutionary. And, you know, we talk about that maybe in terms of if you were if you were one of many zebras and there was a lion coming, you're probably better off not standing out. Mm. (laughs) Um, You know, it's it's kind of good to blend in. Um, And so, yeah, in in terms of, you know, coming back to that, um, you know, people might have experienced bullying or harassment at work or in 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 any environment so hiding your true self is a form of protection from other targeted attacks um and so all of these things um can leave us confused about who we actually really are like what is the true self how do I know which one is really me I know I know the one that people like I'm not necessarily sure if that's the one that I am and there was a great book that I read a very long time ago. Um, I think it's had a few re-editions, but it's called um, Why Am I Afraid to Tell You Who I Really Am by John Powell. And um, I think it's a subtitle that just says, I'm afraid to tell you who I am because if I tell you who I am, you may not like who I am and who I am is all that I have. Um, and so I think there's a lot of um, fear in opening up and being emotionally vulnerable that has a lot to do with that attachment story. You know, if I'm if I'm going to be authentically myself, will I lose connection to these important people? Um, so I just wanted to frame that up a little bit because I think it's a common experience. I think it's something that we all have resonance with and I think that um, in a way it needs to be named because it's so normal um, to have that experience of you know we might call it masking or we might call it something else but we know there's a there's there's a real consequence in the real world for some of us at some points and there has been at some points to be really um you know truly expressing who we really are Um, absolutely oh such helpful context setting thank you so much Mm -hmm. um yeah so I think that um when, when I was thinking about answering this question, I was thinking about how we relate to deciding how we pre- represent ourselves and about the decisions that we make um, in terms of whether I can be authentically myself or whether I can be, you know, authentically myself and stay attached to, to my group or to my people. And it took me to thinking about um my first awareness of that decision was when I was about 16, 15, 16 years old in, in high school. And I think probably everybody who knew me back then would say that she's always got her head in a book and she's always reading. And um, I literally did um, have a very big passion for reading and literature and other languages and history and all of those kind of things. So I was proper, you know, certified bookworm. Um, and we were making those choices at that age about what we're going to do in year 11 and 12 and what that means for our future and all of those kind of things. And what was happening for me was I did also have an interest in science. I had a pretty strong um, affinity with the physical sciences, like physics and astronomy and things like that, Um, and I was I was good at it um, as well. So there was a bit of a there was a bit of a kind of two loves, I suppose, in some ways. 
But to throw something else into the mix relating to that authenticity and attachment story was that my father was a scientist and he, in order to stay connected to my dad, I felt very much that I needed to follow that science road. And so I started off in year 11 doing all the sciences and about two weeks in felt like I was in the wrong skin. I felt like I was not in the right place. I felt that I wasn't, it was a really strange experience for me at that age. Um, in a way, I would say that I was feeling as though I wasn't being true to myself at the time. I could see a future without any books um, and I could see a future without any literature and without poetry and without um, all of these other things that I loved. So I tried to change all of my subjects back to the arts, um, but was stopped and felt even more confronted by that. And so there was that really big, I think at that age, I'd probably say that was an existential crisis. It was a bit too young for a midlife crisis, but <laughs> it was a proper, it was a proper who am I kind of a story right at that point for me. Um, fortunately, I was, and, and fortunately and unfortunately, I actually did work through that. So my school had a, um, a situation where the arts and the sciences were both running at the same time. So I wasn't able to do them both at that school, but I was able to resolve this by going to a different school. And I actually was able to, to, to do both. I was able to do my French and my English and my physics and my chemistry and my maths. And for me, that was, I think that was the beginning of many things. It was the beginning of discovering that my true self was more complicated than just, you know, and I'm pretty sure most of us who are my age would probably have had the same, you only can fit into one stream, you're either this or you're that. Um, but that there was more to me than that. And also enable, being able to somehow keep the attachment at 16 um, and be authentic at the same time um, with with who the, who I really was and I guess the the good part of that story is that that you know we we have teenage dilemmas as we all do and we work out who we are but psychology is a beautiful mix of science and art and um, I really think that that's probably my natural resting place was when I discovered that there was a a field that allowed for both research and scientific discovery and biological reality and also the capacity to be able to imagine and play and develop ideas and build on the back of the the geniuses of, of philosophy and that, that have gone before us so yeah so that that's the thing that came to mind when you when you raised that question Cassie hmm. Thank you so much for sharing that, Ali. I, I think that's such a powerful example of um, the awareness you had even at that young age of 15, 16, that, that you were multifaceted and you didn't fit in either of these neat, distinct buckets and that mm -hmm. you found a way to embrace all aspects of self. I'm really curious because I imagine that would have been a big deal to change schools. You know, there would have been a big cost of having to reform friendships. Mm. Um, you know, that's not a small decision to change schools, right? So what do you recall around that, the the push and the pull of that decision? Because it, it strikes me as it takes enormous courage and conviction to say, no, 
putting myself just into this one bucket. I love how you describe it. Didn't you didn't feel at home in your own skin in that in that particular bucket? And this real knowing that there was that it was more complex than that, and mm-hmm. the the courage to change schools. What do you remember about that time? I mean, I do remember it as being quite a stressful time. Like, I, you know, I, um, I still, um, you know, recall it as quite an existential kind of a, a, a crisis at the time. Um, and I do remember being very worried about the loss of attachment, um, you know, that what would it mean if I was to live forever under the negative appraisal of my father um, for, you know, for choosing the other um so I can remember that as a really big deal and I also remember being pretty satisfied that I'd been able to find a path that actually allowed me to be multiply me in that sense um in the sense that I could honor the different aspects of myself and not be put into a box I think I I recall that as being a a, a big liberation actually mm. it's a huge liberation mm. I mean, I, I'm thinking back to to a recent episode where I spoke to a beautiful lady called Jackie Clark who described her career as just a long series of, yes, you want me to do this role? Yes. You want me to do that thing? Yes. Do you want me to do this? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And I really related to that story Jackie shared. Like so for so many of the listeners, I imagine our whole career paths are just kind of saying yes, 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 yes to whatever little box people want us yes. to get into next. <laughs> um and so this awareness you had that no that little box is is not reflective of all that I am and that little box is way too restrictive and to have the courage to put you know create a bigger a bigger scope for yourself and to refuse to be bound by any one you know Mm. subject or you know in the case of leaders, anyone job title or functional stream or um, one discipline is really a, a quite a significant liberation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know it, we always take this for granted, like the essence or the strength within you that that made that liberation possible. But you know, if there's people listening, thinking, "Oh my gosh, I've spent my whole life just jumping from one box to the next, whatever box people said, jump in here, and maybe <laughs> you'll get more status and more gold mm-hmm. stars and more money." And, mm-hmm. um, you know, what what words of wisdom can you offer from 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 this? this mindset of more more a more liberated mindset what what thoughts can you offer Mm. um yeah I I I can really understand that that um that feeling of entrapment that a lot of people do have you know and um I know it was um Professor Paul Gilbert who who developed compassion focused therapy who really coined that term that um you know depression is is entrapment you know it's that feeling of being completely stuck with no choices and without autonomy and um you know stuck by by real things you know I've got the mortgage so I can't just go and do the thing that I feel like doing you know um they're real life things um and um and so we we don't always have an opportunity in the time the stage of our life to necessarily fully express all of the things that make us feel as though we would be our true and totally authentic selves um similar to uh, myself kind of compromising I I suppose with my father you know I'm worried about losing his approval 
um, or not being seen as smart anymore if I if I change schools or something like that. You know, all of those changes of identity. I think, I think though that for people who really are feeling as though it's that their choices are being driven by these the seeking of another gold star and they're starting to get a bit worn by that um, it might be a thought exercise to just say what would it be like if I didn't seek the, the gold star from that particular organization or that particular person how what would I give myself as a gold star what would what would make me feel free or alive and it might not be necessarily an enormous life change but it might be the way that you go about doing something or the innovation that you then put into place in 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 what you are already doing that is more of an expression of the multiple the parts of you that are saying I'm I'm trapped maybe I can do this thing really well but other parts of me want to be want to have their day as well or have some expression love that what you just said then is so powerful you know and if I can like maybe paraphrase and build slightly it made me think of the question you know if I knew I could give myself gold stars and what I mean by that it's something I do every day if I could if I knew I could be the one to pin the gold stars on the part of me that's attached her self-worth to what she does and what she has and for me that's my little mischievous part Mm-hmm. If, I, if I could be the one to pin the gold stars on her regularly, what choices could I make to feel more free and more alive? There were the words used, more free and more alive. And that's a really liberating question um, that I'm going to think about because actually you know, running my own business, there's not a lot of recognition you know, mm-hmm. I'm not earning what I used to earn. I certainly don't have the fancy job titles. I'm not winning the president's award for living the value of soul, which mm-hmm. I have done in the past. Yeah. There's no one giving me the president's award. Um, every day when I drive home, I have a little ritual of saying to my little misachiever part, hey, sweetheart, good job today. I saw you worked hard. I know that was tricky. I know you were afraid. I see you and and I recognize you. I recognize your effort, your pure heart, your your desire to make a difference in the world. And I have this ritual of just, you know, in my own inner realm, pinning all these gold stars on her. And it really does make a difference, right, to my, the way I feel about myself, my my presence at home when I arrive home, my contentment with life, my my trusting that, you know, I'm okay, I'm doing okay. Um so I love that that uh, that invitation you 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 given all the listeners to think about you know how how might you you have some equivalent um, self recognition practice so that you can be more free and more alive and to see that the, often the entrapment isn't there is there is a way out of the entrapment mm. and. You know, more and more research is coming out now, for example, about the benefits of having a side hustle. It's just one example of freeing ourselves from the entrapment that, you know, uh, Adam Grant's been doing a lot of research that those who maybe just spend a couple of hours a week on something that's really a passion are more productive, more energized, more engaged in the whatever box with the job title. <laughs> it's running yeah, that's right. So the research backs this up of that the benefits of some form of liberation and whatever that means. 
Absolutely. Um, yeah, I'm less aware of his of his research, um, but definitely that that concept of and, and and I guess what he's saying there is if there's a part of you that wants to play or to be creative or to have a different cohort of people that you talk to about um, music or that you that you kind of develop ideas within in some other sort of a way. Um, that's actually very life enhancing because we are multiple, um, and um, the the parts of you that have that have felt trapped are actually the ones saying, um, you know, there's more, there's more here. There's 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 you know, for example, musical parts, or there's creative parts, or there's playful parts. And while we don't devalue the parts that are uh, working hard and and providing and doing all of those wonderful things. They might be tired too. They might they might actually benefit, um, you know, like a good like a good external team, um, or like a great family where one person's tired and another person picks up the slack a little bit um, mm. internally in the internal family system. When say the musical part or the poetry part is satisfied and happy, it's actually able to give some energy to the other parts that have to go to work and do the do the kind of the mundane or the the, the hard thing. Yeah. So true. That made me think about writing my book in lockdown, you know, which for for all of us was such a traumatic experience, particularly here in Melbourne with such long periods of lockdown. But I I remember I I was sneaking away from the kids and my next door neighbour actually let me go and sit in his kitchen because they were in the house. So I would sneak next door into my next door neighbour's kitchen and have a few hours to write my book. And, And I remember thinking, my kids were like, "Where are you going, Mum? And why? Why can't you stay?" And I was, I couldn't, didn't, couldn't find the words. But I, what I knew was that I had to write in order to be a decent mum. Like I had to have that creative outlet. If it wasn't for that creative outlet, I couldn't be the mum I wanted to be because that part of me, you know, was so stifled in that house, and and that little bit of creative outlet for that part of me, and and progressing on a a project so close to my heart was the thing that enabled me to cope so yeah it really resonates so doing um you know if you were just kind of looking at it on an energy level you might say oh that's I don't want to add another thing um but actually that other thing was an energy flow um for you and Mm. um yeah creativity is such a different sort of um brain system than um, you know, that kind of adrenaline focused, finish a task, do the same thing over and over that kind of, I'm motivated to just tick the things off my list. Creativity is an entirely different brain space. It's an entirely dif- different motivational system. And it has the capacity to infill other parts of the brain to energize them back up again, like a rest, right? It's, mm. it's really, really good for the brain. It's like a super, super rest because for me, it's also got that added benefit. It's because I'm not suppressing or denying my innate creativity because at our core, we're all, we know creativity is one of the the core um, qualities of our core selves because I wasn't suppressing or denying or um, I suppose betraying that part of me. Uh, yes, it gave me lots of energy while I was being creative, but it also avoided that buildup of resentment um, mm. that made everything else hard. Mm. Um, so, 
yeah that's I'm gonna have to think more more about that but I, I think that's a really wise wise words there Ali that how how might we give uh, these different parts of ourselves expression as a way to really kind of rejuvenate re-energize um and to feel more liberated yeah and I think that's it's an invitation to not be afraid then that there are other aspects of you you know I think we might have fears that if I if I was to follow it's very black and white sometimes you know if I was to follow what I'm really interested in then I would you know have to sell my house and go and live on a boat or something it doesn't have to be one or the other sometimes it can be um, you know, I can get my dose of boat, um, but I can also um, do the things that kind of keep things ticking along at a particular time in life. Mm. Um, but that, yeah, but by exploring that you have these other yearnings or longings or capacities or skills or talents or interests. Um, I, I know in IFS, then core qualities of self are playfulness and curiosity and openness. Mm. Um, and also um courage you know to to discover those things and to, to find ways to to let them operate in your life um so i would call that being in self energy when you're able to look for that and express that um, but you may find that you have to deal with a few fears along the way you know mm-hmm. what if i'm letting, you know what if i'm letting people down or what if um yeah yeah mm-hmm. i love that and that kind of loops right back as we as we as we close out today back to that whole can of worms challenge that people don't do the inner work because they're afraid of taking the lid off the can of worms and perhaps part of that can of worms is that that fear to your point well um, if I look within what if I figure out that I'm this rather than that and so Mm -hmm. we're using the singular lens when we think about the can of worms as we begin to open our minds and our hearts to the reality that we're multiples I feel like it gives us so much more courage to look within that um, I, I can be an accountant and a, a lover of yoga as, as an example. You know, it doesn't mean that I'm going to suddenly have to leave my family, my job and my kids and go up to Byron Bay to be a yoga instructor. That's probably not where this is going to take me. <laughs> it's not a binary choice here. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I think that gives us more permission to look within, to say what are all these facets of self and how might I embrace all of it in a, and harmonize all of it uh, in a way that that's healthy and uplifting for me um, and that 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 pursuit of harmonization I think is a really powerful one absolutely yeah yeah really really um yeah really nice circle back there actually Cassie yeah that's exactly it's exactly right you know that um that the, yeah don't be afraid to look in there because what what might happen is that you discover new ways to do the same thing um or different things that will add and enrich your life um and and if we think of energy as just this one tap that just gets turned on and when it's gone it's gone it's it's not quite true our brains are much more um self-regulating than that you know um the energy of maybe talking to somebody if you're a little bit extroverted can actually fill your energy tank enormously um and despite a long day or if you're more introverted the energy the the sitting in and reading and reflecting can actually fill your tank right back up um you know we get we get restored in multiple ways um yeah 
Thank you so much, Ali. I know that so many people are going to benefit in so many ways from all that you've shared today. So thank you so much. I'll include some links in the show notes to your psychology practice and maybe also that book you mentioned, because that sounds like a really good book. Um, You mentioned a couple. I'll get those resources from you. So thank you again, Ali. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you today. It was lovely. Thank you, Cassie. It was great. By being true to our deepest selves, we liberate our highest potential and serve the greatest good. As the founder of the Center for Self-Fidelity, I am on a mission to help leaders feel more authentically empowered so we can co-create workspaces where people can thrive, perform, play and belong. Learn more at selffidelity.com.